my last memory is me doing stuff as a normal person and just wake up in hospital, like first come to, you don't really come to cause you're that out of it. Mm. You know what I mean, you sort of phase in and phase out and phase in and phase out type thing. And you're in hospital with half your body ripped apart. Yeah, everyone, this is episode four of the Blowcast, and as always, I'm your host, Brendan Hardman. What you were just listening to right then was the end of part one of the Damien Tomlinson interview. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, stop here, go back and listen to episode three, and then rejoin us here in episode four. I just wanted to quickly give a huge shout out and a thank you to everyone that has supported the Blowcast so far, and to everyone that is giving us a review on iTunes. We're always looking for ways that we can improve the podcast and we can deliver a better journey for you guys. And if you haven't yet, jump onto iTunes and give us a review and tell us what you think. Okay, all that admin crap aside, let's get stuck into the second half of the Damien Thomason interview and we'll catch up again at the end. Wins. Yeah, yeah. So then, a- speaking of those, I guess that that recovery progress uh, process. Sorry, the amount of adversity you've gone through at this stage, like your mental health, has to be copying a pretty fucking pretty hard battering. How did you go through that with recovery, learning how to walk again, you know, learning how to use prosthetics, um, like, and then combating that with your with your mental health? How did you How did you balance the two? I drank a lot. Um- it's probably not. Yeah, it's not the most effective way. Oh, I think at the, at that stage, besides we used to drink a lot yeah, when we were at work anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know, Would you do it to hang out? Plus, there was a lot of a lot of the boy, the boys and stuff like that, as, especially during the initial phase. We'd always, we'd go out a lot, but um, it was more when you do stuff. There's these the little wins, like you're saying. You get like you can see a progression in everything you're doing. You know, I find that tasks become monotonous when I guess you don't see improvement. You know, you're really working as hard as you can and you see nothing move forward. I had like a a sort of section where I was consistently having all of these little wins. You know, I was just like, all right, cool. I've achieved this today. And then I give myself a goal, even though it seems reasonably pedestrian. You know, if I was walking for a minute one day, I want to be walking for three the next. Yep. It was, you sort of go through, you go through a lot of different stuff where, Looking back, my mind state wasn't great at different stages. You know, I'd had, I'd had positions that now, like, raise a load of alarm bells. Yeah, definitely. Uh, at, the, at the time, I was kind of like, that's just what it's like. And I think yeah, the good thing with my sort of stage at that, at that point, I had no regrets about why I was there. Mm. No regrets about why I was there, how it happened, or what I was doing. You know, it was just one of those, it just was the way the ball rolled that day. Yeah. You know, I mean, cool. Now I've got to bounce back. Yeah. Fair enough. You know, it wasn't like, I guess, if someone cops a really bad car accident and they're not at fault in, kind of wake up in hospital and have that why me type thought. I never had that. I was like, this is my job and that's what I did. Yeah. And you it know, just I, happened that the dice rolled. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You know, I mean. Was it a pressure, pressure plate IED? Like, uh, we don't really know. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, if it was, then. It was an, we think it was an one from the. The way that the yeah right yeah the, the sort of way the car unfolded and the fact that the guy next to me is like he was pretty close, pretty close to me, but he he only got scratches under his eye and a blown eardrum, you know, and he's literally like two feet away. We think it was that was that type of IED, and that because because yeah. I knew what it had done, and I was still proud over the fact that as as in the army that I got to serve at that level, I'd been over, I got to test everything. So when I came back, I had a pretty positive state with where everything was at plus you're consistently getting better you know i've gone from the stage of working out twice a day to being happy to be able to walk to get coffee or get in a wheelchair and push to get coffee mm. you know and then with that i'd sort of had sort of little little wins that keep your mind in a good shape but there are a lot of times when you got to just readjust you just got to check fire and go all right this is tough or i could do this better you know, and I think that's probably the best best skill that it's gifted me with is the fact that at different stages, you just got to objectively look at yourself and go, am I, am I working towards the solution or am I contributing to the problem? Yeah. Um, be that if the problem is actually a physical problem or if the problem is just as simple as an attitude adjustment. Mm. Um, 
different things, you know, they all take different approaches. And the definition of insanity is repeating the same action, expecting a different result. So, but being able to step back when you're trying to find a solution to a problem is, it's a skill, I think, you know, I mean, which is great because it means it can be learned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I sat through and like, there was a lot of times where I kind of had to adjust my approach to, to the way I was dealing to the way I was dealing with things and how I think. But I mean, I, I went in, I came out the same guys I went in with, you know, and that was someone who would say, yes, if you asked me to do something, I'd say yes, then try and work out a way to do it. You know, I'd rather take a problem on and take it head on and give it everything and go and fail at it than sit and wonder whether, you know, why, what would, what would it have been like? I hate that thought. I think well, it's the worst type of thought I could have. Yeah, Gary Vaynerchuk, he, he's, I love him. love all the shit he does. But he, he puts it, he goes, you'll never know what that pathway would have taken if you didn't do it. Like, it's, yeah. like there's no point in reminiscing on, on shit that you, yeah. you may have done because you don't know, you don't know what could have happened. Like, That's you, it. I mean, there's a lot of, the jump, you know? and there's a lot of guys, right, that have got that story of what they could have done. Yeah, I mean, like it's like that guy. There's always that that dude at the pub who could have made it if he was a good ass. You had a fucking great left foot. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he just drank too much piss. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but no, it wasn't the piss. It was a it was a shoulder injury. That sort of train of thought I never liked. I don't like the excuses of it. You know, I mean, I'd rather if someone just went, "Man, I missed it. I just missed it." I I like that. I just respect it because, and that's the thing that I was saying before, you know, the type of person that just has nothing to prove. If they're comfortable enough for themselves to just go, ah, I missed it. I gave it everything and comfortably say that, or even, even like the hardest one to say, could have given it more, but missed. Yeah. Like being confident enough in yourself. Having to, that ownership about. Yeah. Ownership of your thoughts and your own, yeah, your own yeah. process, your own life. Fa- yeah. Let's face it. Everyone, you, we've all got things that we would do a different way. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, like that's the beauty of hindsight. Yeah, I mean, as you oh, I could have done that better, and it would have worked. To not have the ability, and I, I speak about this during my talks. You know, I speak about um, it's sort of that ability to take the objective view. You know, which part of it I think is giving yourself the ability to fail, giving yourself the ability to do it. That doesn't change your intentions or how you train or how you prepare yourself. What it does is gives you the, it gives you a completely different approach. I think you make different choices when because it gives it adjusts, it changes your confidence, changes the way you completely approach something, everything that you do, on the way into a situation, and then when adversity is put in front of you, it completely changes the way that you deal with that adversity. You you hit every problem up in a completely different way. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, and it's to me that. And that's about that sort of mental approach. But still getting hurt taught me that. You know, it taught me because there's so many things that you're like, oh my God, how do I make this work? Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, cool. I've got to, I've got to change the way that I'm going about it. That, uh, I think that ownership of, I guess what you do and mistakes you make then ultimately makes you better at things that you do. 100%. You look at, there's so many, I guess there's so many, history is littered with cases of this, you know, the, the Thomas Edison failed 999 times and on the 1,000th time he invented the light pole. You know, mm. but he just said it was just, I just had 999 lessons. Yeah. And, you know, these other examples, the Wright brothers, they failed, they had no funding, they failed constantly and then finally got flight. Yeah. And, you know, I, I talk about it all the time as well. I, I think that people's concept behind decision-making is completely flawed within businesses and and not necessarily outside the military because it happens in the military as well. But people think that there's, you know, there's such a thing as, you know, a wrong decision and a right decision. But in the end, the only wrong decision you can make is to make no decision. Yeah. It's the one that you don't do. Yeah, exactly. Everything else is just a different breadth of learning that you take. So on your more, on your better decisions, you know, you might, you still learn a heap, but you might learn a little bit less, but then, you know, on, on your, on your poorer decisions, then you, you, should be learning a fucking shitload, you know, you yeah. should be able to take a lot away from that. So, yeah. you know, do it'd, be, it'd be hard as well being, being an officer, you know, your decisions are all scrutinized. Yep. There's every single person below you could make a, could make a better decision. You're like, Oh, could you just mate? like, that's why you're not making the decision. But <laughs> um, uh, Henry Demetria, the head of the AFL. Yeah. It used to be. Um, the AFL, yeah. 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 About 10 years ago, nine years ago. Eight years ago, probably would have been. I'm not sure. I was there with him and, and Mark Taylor, and he was talking about leadership. Mm-hmm. 
you know, he said, you know, that's one of the, the great things about leaders. Good leaders make decisions. 100%. You know, and that's, and they, have to, they have to do it on the you're making decisions. It doesn't yeah. matter what. what you're making calls. No, it, nothing gets people killed like indecision. Yeah, just don't make the same shit decision twice. That's all. <laughs> and you're right. Like you do get scrutinized a lot. Like you, especially when coming in as a young officer, like you, you know, 80% of your soldiers are either the same age or older than you. Like it's, um, it can be challenging to try and persuade <laughs> that this is what you got to do. But I, I was very fortunate. I had a, I always had good soldiers that, um, and whether or not that's a reflection of me or not, but, uh, who knows, but I always had good, soldiers that kind of looked after me and and that and would do whatever i said like you know and not because i i was giving an order but because they would just they would just happily follow me and i've had yeah i was about to say i can't really see you as the type of boss who'd have to lead with an iron fist no no it's really easy to follow it's hard to lead it's really difficult to lead i think it's a really great skill that people have but i think to someone like with the character traits that you've got would sort of have that you know, I guess when you're doing something, you wouldn't really need to give it as an order. People would know that it's an order or that it's got to be done, but it doesn't have to be escalated to that level. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, well, let's get, let's get this done. You know I mean? Technically it's an order, but let's all just get it done. Your role's doing that. Mine's just saying this bit, everyone let's, let's work towards the same goal. All right. Let's talk about your sport, man. I want to get into your, you know, you've been, Paris snowboarding you've done the target rally we're going to talk about the Dakota trail in a bit so we'll leave that one for the moment but um really and, and your golf obviously which is where we met tell me a bit about what sport was like for you and how you how you managed to get yourself back into being able to do it again it's strange man I went on a journey of trying to find it's really weird when you still feel like yourself but you're trying to find yourself and I didn't realize at the time that that's what was happening I saw sitting down in a wheelchair to play a sport as a step backwards, you know? So I still wanted to paddle out and go surfing. That went badly both times. And I... You surf a lot when you were a kid. Yeah, ton, ton. I loved it, man. Um, I spent most of the summer just wearing a set of board shorts and putting a shirt on if I was going out. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of a bit hard to know that those things weren't going to be an option anymore. Prosthetics and rust. I didn't really didn't want to... I wanted to takes part in sport that I didn't have to compromise what I thought was me. I used to kickbox heaps. I obviously couldn't do that because I didn't have legs anymore. I went down to a winter camp that they had, you know, snowboarding. And I'd been, I'd snowboarded a bit before I got hurt. I thought, this is just, this is amazing. It's awesome. Like, because I could, I could do it. I can do it with prosthetics on similar sort of level than I was before I got injured. You know, so I was like, this is great. This is what I want to do. Yeah. And so I like, and not really what I want to do as such, but this, this, is, next, this is your next goal kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it would just reminded me that I was me. Yeah. I'd always love to like surfing and snowboarding and riding a skateboard and whatever. When I was young, I was like, okay, this is still me. Mm. Here we go. And I, I kind of like those little sort of memories because you've got to compromise on enough stuff. You know, you've got to take your legs off and, you know, different things to change stuff and have a, a wheelchair around the house and all these little things that, you know, it does enough without it having to take who I am away. So I, I love snowboarding and I raced for a couple of years. When they were letting it into the Paralympics in 2014, we found out in 2013. I'd been over and ridden with the guys in Park City in Utah and they there was no factoring system, which is a fancy way of saying handicapping system. Yeah. Um, you can't say handicapping system in adaptive sport for some reason. Um, we call it, we call it point system in basketball yeah so it's yeah what was a factoring system there like why can't you just call it a handicapping system like wouldn't anyone get the joke it is a good joke (laughs) material yeah that is it's great there is zero fat on that joke it's one word so i was basically racing against dudes who were missing like half a foot like yeah yeah. a scratch compared to me and like then there's no time differential so i was having to work really hard i broke my back while i was doing it trying to trying to speed up yeah it was just one of those things i had to go okay cool i'm i'm moving back to i mean i made a call to my old girl after i broke my back and she was whinging not whinging but she ripped into me because i chipped my tooth and i was telling someone that story i was the next year and i was like it's actually something that i really don't want to do you know i don't want to wake up in a hospital and then have the doctor say to me dude this time you can't learn to walk yeah and it just it just happened when i was talking that was the point where you said no that's it so yeah, I mean, I still made a bit of a 
push for Sochi, but I think it kind of, it threw a little bit of water on the fire. Like it took away that little bit of reckless abandon that I think when you're really training hard for something you need to have. I was really lucky that the Invictus Games came up that next year. Yep. And at, at that stage, I really, I started to really yearn for, I love the team thing that happened. I mean, even though snowboarding is an individual thing, I rode with Team Utah from the US mm. and we had like 20 odd riders on the team. It was phenomenal. It was one of the coolest team environments ever. And I really wanted something like that again. So when they said that the Invictus Games was coming up, to be able to sit down and play the sport again, like the wheelchair basketball, have a group of people who do it in Sydney and, and, and volleyball and have just a little bit of that feeling that you get in the army. When that popped up, I was, I was stoked to get back, onto, back on the horse. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was really, really, really cool to sort of be able to take part in something like that. Plus know that I'd sort of beaten a hurdle. Yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? Like, because you kind of hang onto it pretty tight. Yeah, went over and competed in them. In between, well, like one of the things I think when you're in the position that, that I was, I, you start to realize that, say, I made a choice to go overseas, but my family and everyone around me makes the sacrifice because they've still got to deal with picking up the pieces. 100%. They've got to get those call, that phone call that, you know, he's yep. hanging on for his life. I remember my dad, and this is how I got into golf. We went out to play, and I had like, my snowboarding legs, I'm pretty sure. Like it was... I don't think I got all nine holes in because you can't walk in snowboarding legs properly. But I, I never thought about how it impacted everyone else. Like I did a bit, you know, I thought about it, but I, I'd never really seen any tells. And he shanked, I don't think he shanked it, but he didn't hit it well. He didn't launch his club at his bag. Like it wasn't like a proper dummy spit, I'm going to hurt the bag and the club yeah. for what they did. The dudes you see throwing the clubs in the lake and yeah, shit. But he, yeah, yeah, that's it. But he speared it like this weird javelin. Like two hours before that, I'd literally fallen over on something that was reasonably flat. And I got up laughing at it, thinking, you know, if I laugh at it, everyone's going to think it's all right. Yeah. And then it wasn't until then that I really thought about it and I was like, all right. And then I went, you know, you're his invincible son. You've been in the special forces, you've done all of that, and now you can't even stand up on a golf course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. We've got to do something about this. And then I made a really conscious effort to go up and play with him. Each Friday, there's Members Day up at uh, the club that we're, a mem- we're members at. And they had, um, so I would go up with him every Friday and play. And that's kind of where we, um, we first met. Uh, it was, was we went to Canada. Uh, we went to, no, we didn't go to Canada. We went to Wales together mm. and, and played some golf with, with Soldier On. And, um, and as a part of the Clyde Pierce Cup, that is a, is a great thing that they do there. And, and I remember before I even got on the plane, like I didn't actually want to leave the, the um the airport i just had this massive anxiety attack and at the airport i didn't want to go and, and then my men about being but just end up kicking me in the ass and pushing me through the door essentially and get me on the plane and but it was the best thing for me at that point of time because i didn't have that before then and then to go out and the to have you and and bushy and ian and 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 the boys kind of get around me there and yeah it was it was that banter and that even in the face of adversity to be able to have that black humor banter was was what really made it special and yeah the, the wealth the sorry the guys from the uk are awesome in general but their black humor and how at home they make you feel yeah yeah definitely just just great fun it's awesome to be a part of it was it was it was really it was really good to be there and then you know i just remember there was this point yeah, I wasn't playing. We, we did play with each other, and and you kind of joked it before where you took a swing at a ball and you pretty much did a three hundred and sixty, and your legs stayed in one spot and your body went over, yeah, fell on the ground. But I remember there was <laughs> this one hole we were going, no, no, but- and everyone was kind of in. It was kind of one of those holes where there's three or four holes next to each other, and you were kind of in the middle, and and everyone it just happened to be that everyone was all at that one point at the one time and you were walking in the bunker trying to hit your ball out and you'd gone to take a swing and then you just fucking tipped up straight in the bunker and everyone <laughs> everyone just went kind of quiet and then is he okay then just everyone just burst out laughing and it was just, <laughs> it was just the funniest thing seeing the dude with no legs just fall over in the bunker yeah. <laughs> waving it out getting up blowing up as well just yeah <laughs> frustrated didn't get the ball up well, Ian, Ian did a hole in one on that one of those days as well. That was Ian, a, yeah, Ian did it on the 2010 course. That yeah, was, yeah. So like I was, I was in his team that day, and he hit one, and he missed the green by a mile. 
Yeah, I remember you telling me that he missed about a meter and a half. He had to play a club like easily, but he was one club wrong at least. And he hit this hill and then starts rolling backwards towards it. And so I just start yelling at the ball, like swearing at it and stuff. Come on, get in, you little bastard. Like doing that. And then it just keeps running forward. And you're like, this might actually, wait a minute. This could go in. Yeah, next thing you know, it's gone in. It was, it was crazy. I've never seen anything like it before. And then, yeah, I saw a hole in one. On a Ryder Cup course as well. Yeah. So that's, that's bloody good. I like that about golf. It's strategy. Yeah. I remember when we were playing at Noosa, our strategy. Because my, my drives, you know, they can either be really hot or really cold. Well, I remember then me just slaying one into the bush, then you getting up. <laughs> he got up and we had cameras there. The golf show was there. And they're looking at us going, all right, cool. I've got you guys. Here's um, And you're out there just ready to just slowly, like nice and gentle, just hit it straight down the center. Smoke it up the middle. It was the hardest swing I've seen you ever take. Like the sound that that club made as it like traveled two inches above the ball. Breaking airspeed. <laughs> like it was, it was louder than a, a cracking whip in the country. Like it was crazy. And then <laughs> because it made the sound, mate, like I still literally, I can't tell a story without laughing at it. Like, Wishka. <laughs> yeah, Wishka. I remember looking over at the deep. And one of their boys, and just like trying to hold it. <laughs> I look at his face, and the minute like you just tell he was holding this laughter, in, and oh my god, I was in tears. I still, man, honestly, if I'm ever like feeling like a bit crap, if I'm on the golf course or something, if I'm not playing well, I think about that, Wooshka. You just think about how shit I am at golf. Oh, man. <laughs> no, it's, it's brilliant, but like the intent to absolutely crush this. Oh, ball. dude! Like we had what cameras there. Everyone was surrounding me. I was, I was felt, I felt, I was sweating. I was hot. I was, yeah, I was you only missed bad. it by like an inch. But still, you had the like yours was always. You would get the, and that was the thing. You were the consistent guy. Because because of my back though, it's actually worse for me if I miss the ball. So that fucking hurt. <laughs> yeah, right. We'd see like all the other ones. You were always the guy, right? Cool. We can rely on you to hit it straight. Yeah, at least at least we go straight. You have a crack, and then I'll just try and put it somewhere. Yeah, we hit the straight one so that we can win, and then then you just got up there and completely different. It was the best. That's probably like it's honestly that Ian's hole in one that makes that's got to make my like all time three highlights of my golfing career. Yeah. It has to, because it, it was just so unexpected as well. You're always <laughs> yeah. so calm, you know, you're always so controlled and calculated. And then you, you get up there and just do something that was so out of character. <laughs> but you'd expect that from me. You'd expect me to go up there and just swing my face over the ball. Yeah. You know, like just slip a disc trying to hit the ball hard. <laughs> you were always like, yeah, calm up there. And then, and then what was it? It was, it was just after that. Yeah, not long after that, I hit that flop shot with a 60 from 10 feet back up to the green. I punk a ball up on the, like about just over a foot away to win the Clyde Pierce Cup. I had one putt. So all I had to do was put it in from a foot away on camera. And missed. And I missed. But I mean, then, I, I th- and I think that's another reason why I like look at things that happen and the world a particular way because like a lot of this stuff physically I found I would take for granted when I was young you know I was physically reasonably gifted I could do stuff and then when you get put in a situation where you're not and you've really got to work hard to make it work you then adjust your mindset and the way that you think about stuff to the point where like now I look at it and I'm so glad that the foot actually works yeah the foot does something really really pedestrian but like you can see that level of improvement I like it. I like the fact that now I can look at things that with that bit of perspective that, you know, I think um, it took something like what happened to me to, to give me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that's the only time I really wonder. It's the only time I really go, I wonder what would have happened if, how would I have been if I didn't, if I, was, if I wasn't injured? And then I think about it, I'm like, I wouldn't have had all of this perspective and all of this, the ability to sort of think about stuff in that way. Mm-hmm. No, and I it, it literally makes me cringe. I'm like, would I have still been ignorant enough? Yeah, to think that stuff just always came naturally. I I look at it from a perspective of my marriage. Before I got injured and got sick, and um, six six the wrong word. I shouldn't use that, but um, but I won't edit it out. It's, it can stay in there. But before I got, I guess, mentally unstable. I guess at, at that point, my myself and my wife's relationship was awesome. It was, it was great. And we weren't married then we were engaged, I think. And, um, but then I wonder now 
always, I kind of look at it not hindsight, but I wonder now what if I had, if, what if we hadn't had to go through all the adversity we did? I mean, my, my wife, uh, she was, when we first met, she was 20, you know, and, and then I'd started to show some really bad signs when she was like 22, you know? And so when you got a 20, 22, 23 year old having to go through her, her husband laying next to her trying to commit suicide, like that's not a fucking, that's a heavy thing to go through for such a young age person. And, yeah. and she's an incredible woman. And, and, and so for me now I look back and I'm just like, well, would we, would we be as close as we are now if we didn't have to go through all the adversity to get here? No. And, and, I, and I can't, I honestly don't have an answer for it. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think I it's, it's a would. pretty strong indicator, but like that you guys are still together. You know, yeah. I mean? like there's obviously there's, there's going to be tough times for anyone, no matter what, what you are or who you are, you know, eventually something's going to come unstuck, you know, so to be able to go through that and then come out the other side, I think it make you, makes you stronger. You know I mean? It obviously does. You guys are still together. Like I can't really have crap happening. I can't really see anything that would bust up me and Abby. My missus, man, I don't, I just can't see a problem that's that big. You know, she literally makes a little baby that's just taking up all of her time and everything that she's got to do. She makes it look easy. And I remember there was, Liam Haven said something really cool to us because I was still dealing with what people thought. And I battled that for a long time, you know, like I battled people's opinions about what I looked like. And ultimately I should have never worried about, like, why does it matter? Mm. You know, as long as you're comfortable in your own skin, that's the only important thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was like, you know, in skinny jeans, it just become popular and I'd have my legs blown off and I'm like, no leg, no fake legs, suit skinny jeans. No, it doesn't work. Yeah. And then you realize you don't have any control over what people think, you know, and you have little or no input. People will forge an opinion before you have the chance to do anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? And how you look, if someone's judging you as a person based just on how you look, they're a fucking idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know you don't know why they look that way. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know what their yeah. story is. Yeah. So it took me a while to actually get that, you know, like I literally, I went, when I was on uh, Survivor this year, my goal of going on there, I wanted the boys to then, to just see that, you know, I'd bounce back. All right. I really wanted to get across to just one handicapped kid that you could do it. You know, that you could, you could take stuff to a new level, that trying things were the only way. That theory that we were talking about before, shot the, the only shot you miss is the one you don't take type thing or whatever it was. But like I also thought for me it was a building experience because I hate being seen with in shorts. That was honestly, that was the hardest bit of that trip to Wales with the boys. Mm. I like the golf trip, having to play in shorts. Yeah, yeah. No one else there. Like there's no one to see it, but I still hated it. Yeah. I still wasn't comfortable and I'm still sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm all right, but I try to sort of save people that weird look of, oh, fuck, what's going on there? You know what I mean? And then yeah. go, then them thinking, oh, did I just pull a weird face? Is he going to be insulted by the weird face? Am I pulling another one right now? Oh, God, what's, I'm, I'm just going to walk this way, like stopping that whole thing from happening. But I went on that show so that, like, I, because I knew it was a, so it's one of the battles that, you know, I struggle with. So if I go on there... I'm going to take all covers off the legs, wear shorts the whole time. So every single person, and it's got a pretty big audience, every single person who watches this show is going to see me and only know that I wear prosthetics. Yeah. They're going to see it. It's going to be there. Yeah. That's awesome, man. It's, it's taking ownership, right? It's, it's, it's just, yeah, it was locking in. I mean, it was, it was kind of I thought it would be a lot harder than it was. And did you, when you, when you went through that, did you then reflect on that afterwards and think, um, or did you, I guess, did you challenge that thought that went through your head afterwards? And you said, actually, you know what, this, the truth of this actually is that, you know, people don't look at me differently when I, yes, yeah. occasionally you get the awkward look, like you were saying, but, but people don't think of me any differently because they have no legs. Yeah. 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 That's it. There's a lot, there's a lot of different things that I think define you. Cause I can tell you now, man, your legs don't define you as fucking shit. Like it's your personality is incredible. You're an incredible bloke. And the fact that we have any sort of relationship has nothing to do with your legs. It's to do with your personality and it's to do with you and see with the brotherhood that we have and, and that kind of stuff. Like, you know, you, and, and that would go for any of the boys, whether they're in the SF world, whether they're in our golf world, whether, whatever, whatever it is, or anyone, any of your family as well, you know, it's, you know, they don't see the legs, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't see the legs. I yeah. I mean, it, 
that's what I was saying about that positive mindset of coming into problems. And I mean, it is something I'm still working on, you know, is going into problems with that positive mindset. It's effectively removing doubt from the equation. Yeah. No, but I mean, I'm, I'm found, glad you're doing it though. That's, that's, that's good, man. It's really yeah. good. And you seemed like you had a pretty good relationship with Steve Willis on there as well. You know, from what I could see, because I watched, I watched until you got voted off and then I was like, fuck this. I'm not watching this shit. <laughs> Flip the table and walk out. And yeah, yeah. Bullshit. But, um, <laughs> but, but when you could see that you, when you guys, you know, when you first got there, you started to immediately set up the, the tent. You started to or make the accommodation where you're going to sleep the shelters and stuff. And you guys just went about it and just did it. Everyone mm-hmm. else was bitching and moaning and stuff like that. But you just had this instant bond. And then you could see after you got voted out, he was just so dirty for like days. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he, just, he wasn't happy. So we had, we had a really good time with that. We found that like Maddie and, and Sam was really cool too. He was, um he would sit there and tell us stories about the, about astronomy and different things like that and all these astrophysics stuff that would just blow both of our minds <laughs> and you know we'd sit there so we're both telling like worries and stuff like that about flying around in helicopters or doing stuff or shooting things and then then he would talk about constellations of stars and what they were doing and why ones appear different colors and all this sort of i mean it was just a good time in general to yeah. sit out there. But I think as well, because me and Steve were so close, I think the one thing that we could always rely on each other for is you just know that dude's given 110%. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything that he does, you, I know that he's giving it everything he's got, you know, and he knows, I think the, the thing that annoyed him was he always knows it's the same thing with me. I'm always yeah. going, it's just the way that we're wired. You have to be, or you're not going to pass election. And I think that was part of it. Someone who he really knew how the guy was wired had left the show. Yeah. Yep. 2013, you released your best-selling autobiography called without warning. It must've been hard to release a book within the SF world, then be worried about what people were going to say about it. I'd been approached about doing the book when I was still serving. Uh, As soon as I did the 60 minutes piece with Ray Martin, uh, I started, things started flooding in. I think when my time was sort of done, with being in the army, it took me a while to really grasp that it wasn't going to be me that I had to move out and find something different. It was hard to take that sort of next step. And because I wanted it to be just a really confronting, honest reflection of how I was. And I, I remember speaking to Harper Collins about it and they said, so what do you see? What I wanted to do when I wrote it was really have, try and capture my, the voice of what my brain was going through at that stage. Mm-hmm. and then try and say it in words so that people would sort of feel like they were in that room or having that stressful moment or having that moment where everything went amazingly or something of the sort, you know what I mean? And then, but it's a hard, it's a hard one to do. But when it came to the unit, that's, I used the Google rule. If you can Google it, people know it's there. So yeah, you can say it. That kind of gave me an, enough confidence to voice my own thing in the book. But it was, what, it was the hardest to write, I think, from... That because everyone has stuff that's frustrating, yep. but I think it was hard to do because I was so young. Yeah, you know, there are people I they've asked about a biography, and I'm like, I wasn't that interesting before I joined the army. I certainly wasn't interesting while I was in the army, and I got injured, and all of a sudden I'm interesting. What do people want to know? When I was first hurt, I did that bit with Ray Martin. He's one, he's amazing at what he does, but he made me feel so comfortable when I was talking to him. It was just me talking to him. And then people were like, that's so inspirational. That's so this. And I, I didn't really know what inspirational meant. Yep. And I was like, it's insp- well, how's it inspirational? It's just me talking to a dude. And then like, I, it, and that was one of the things that I found with writing with the book, you know, you just, people say, Oh, it's inspirational or it does this and uh, motivated them to, to do something. I'm like, Oh, cool. But I still did. I, you know, I didn't really know how, <laughs> you know what I mean? It didn't seem like it was that big of a thing, but. Like you feel like with a book, it kind of puts a full stop on what's happening. There's probably more stuff has happened after the book had been released. You know, I mean, since it, I just missed the Paralympics. I decided that after that, after that had happened, that I was going to pick exactly what I wanted to do and try and find something different to do as a profession. And went in and studied acting. Ended up getting that role in Hacksaw Ridge. That was huge. Talk about in a minute. Yeah, that was. That, I mean, that was great fun. And Actually, we can segue um, straight into that if you want. Yeah, it was, well, let's, I mean, let's, let's talk about Hacksaw Ridge because that is one of the best war movies I've seen in a long time. 
It's good, like, man. Mel's a genius. The way that, that was produced, man, the way that Mel did that was just so good, man. It was just, it, I don't know. It was just, I just felt like there was so much passion in the movie. And it, I just felt like when I watched it, I was just engrossed. And I haven't seen that in a war movie in a long time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, probably since Black Hawk Down, to be honest. Yeah. I, I fucking love Black Hawk Down. I love that movie. But, um, but you know, since, since then, I can't think off the top of my head of another movie that, I've, that has really drawn me in like Hacksaw Ridge has. And, yeah, it was- and so tell me about that because that there's so many cool stories about you know you working in that area but yeah tell me about the process mate tell me about the movie we i mean i think getting there was just as much fun i went and i mean people draw like i was talking a second ago about inspiration i actually find like i said i find the struggle of people giving something they're all regardless of the result i find that inspiring yeah, definitely. No, I really like. I love watching people succeed when they've done it. I think I think that's great. So being inspiring doesn't have to be a world champion. You know, it's just someone who's working as hard as they possibly can. Yeah, definitely. Uh, anyone who's doing that, I think, is great. And but like, so I and I went. I ended up getting a um an audition with Nikki Barrett, who's amazing. She cast Gatsby. She's cast a heap of stuff. She's brilliant. Um, but I ended up getting an audience with her, which just a stroke of being in the right place at the right time with that. I get this really cool call after because I like walked out and I was like, I was happy. I did everything I thought I needed to in the audition. And then I was down at, I was down at Coogee manager calls us and I didn't get too much. I got like a little sheet that said what I had to do as a Bravo company troop. I kind of knew it was a war movie, but didn't know what it was. Independent war movies were the info that I had. So I had no idea that Hollywood was coming to Australia. (laughs) I'm on speakerphone. So I know I'm either getting fired or something good's happening. I sort of said to him, I was just going, dude, what's happening? He goes, you got the part. You're gonna be your name character's name's Ralph Morgan. I'm like, what? And he goes, Yeah, yeah, I got a you got a big one for you, but Mel Gibson's directing. <laughs> and then I I remember turning to to my ex and saying something to her. I was just like, Oh my god, this is phenomenal. I got the role, my name's Ralph Morgan and Mel Gibson's directing. And she looked at me and goes, Who's she? The fucking Braveheart is who she is. Like, are you kidding me? And then... Just, then just yell freedom at her face. <laughs> uh, I was close. I kind of, I think I was too baffled. I was just like, it's fucking Braveheart. Like, wow. I was still excited. And then he goes, yeah, we're meeting with him next week. So we went in and there was um, two of the producers in there. And I walked in to this room and I looked at this wall. And this, there's this wall of faces. There would have been... 21 faces or something like that across it, you know, and so there's Sam Worthington, Vince Vaughn, Frastorani, I remembered him out of, uh, out of Underbelly, was my favourite bit. He, he's done, like, House Husbands, he's been great in that. Um, but I remember watching, looking at all these faces, and then there's my smiling mug in the middle of it. I'd like, it was then that I was like, you are in serious deep water here, Damo. Like, <laughs> How was it working with with him and with guys like Vince Vaughn and... and- you know, the other guys are cast in this movie. I mean, Hugo Weaving, Sam Worthington. Yeah. I, I found Sam was, Sam was great. He's good fun, man. And met Andrew. And at that stage, he wasn't hanging out with everyone else the whole time. So he was kind of spared until the sequences. Cause that was all the barrack sequences we did first. Mm-hmm. So we had to hate him. Yeah. And he ostracized himself. So he didn't feel, he'd actually feel like he was an outsider. Yeah. And then when we were actually together, when we were shooting the rib stuff and the battle sequences, he came and would hang out. Yeah. It was like he was one of the boys. It was really cool. Yeah. I mean, he would be four intermittently, but not too much. Yeah. And yeah, like yeah. Vince was, Vince was great. He's hilarious, man. You know, and then you go and you just see how professionals do things. But I mean, Andrew was the first guy on set. He was the last guy to leave. He was always prepared and he was just a study in excellence the whole time, man. The way he carries himself, everything that he does was just out of this world. So tell us about the scene um, that I was talking about earlier where it's, it was your kind of key scene in the movie where you were essentially going to lose your legs. Yeah, blown up, yeah. I got a crap average, don't I? Like, I mean, I've deployed three times with the army, one extra time if you consider that one one time. And I've got a 50% rate of getting my legs blown off. <laughs> But yeah, when when they asked about doing it, I kind of I knew when I was walking into the room what they were going to ask, because <laughs> we we'd had the meeting, we'd signed on, everything was good. Like I just want to talk to you about an idea they've got, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that this idea is going to be run over a bomb. And I they kind of, they got me into the office, and then when I went into the office, I was like, all right, I get a you know I get to see what they're actually coming back with, and they go, look, would you be comfortable losing your legs, you know, on the you know having playing a guy who got injured? I was like. 
Yeah, I'll do it for sure. You know, I mean, let's do it. And they go, so it's not going to bring anything up. I said, to be honest with you, I don't know. If it does, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And they're like, um, are you sure? Because this could be a pretty bad thing. I said, well, if I, I, I've tried. I've literally meditated. I've tried everything. Almost tried being hypnotized to try and find where it was in my mind. The only thing that made it real was when Turns told me that my arms were, he had to put his arms across my chest. That's the only bit that I can get. Yeah. So I was kind of keen to see where it would go. Like, where's this going to go? We got, we had some support there, but I kind of liked it. I was like, I don't know, maybe it'll be cathartic, which I think it was in a sense because I thought that was what it must be like to live through it. Like, and I, I don't know, like is when I was doing the scene, I did it, I approached it the same way. I think a lot of other actors would. Um, like I knew everything I had to say and what I had to do. I just sort of sat there and just imagined myself running through the battlefield prior to it. Just firing up, just made up in my mind, my guy was right-handed. Did a couple of things. And then as soon as the bang happened, they called action. So I sat up and looked at what I saw. I got to the stage where I actually believed that I was that guy. And then so when I when they called action, I sat up and my, my legs weren't there. Yeah. And I just imagined myself running, which was the first time I'd imagined myself running since I got hurt. And yeah, so it was pretty easy to just sort of scream and uh, like cry and stuff. But it was it was really cool. Like I did, we did the first take and Mel came out and just goes, look, man, open your mouth a bit. Can you open your mouth a bit more? And he goes, because you're kind of grinding your teeth. I'm like, I don't know why. All I think of is like, I, I was putting my brain through the pain that was there and it was making me grind my teeth. But um, yeah, we, he said, open it. I did it the second time. He literally ran out down to me and slapped me five. And I was like, sweet. And we we're resetting the sequence. Uh, one of the producers just came out and goes, like started talking to me and just goes, that was amazing. And I said, well, like, cause you don't really know when you're doing it. I'm like, yeah. what? And he goes, I, I turned around and looked cause they had a tent full of people. So like I turned around and looked and every single person in the tent was crying. So one awesome moment to another, we're going to take a step back in time. Yeah. And, we, and we'll talk about the Kokoda trail. Yeah. It was Scotty's, with Scotty's dad. And so for people who may not be aware, Kokoda trail is a 96 kilometer trail through some of the most rugged and harsh terrain on this earth, I'd say. And for you to do that with no legs and prosthetics, most people will struggle to do it with, with both legs. And so, but then for you to also do that with Scotty's dad, tell us about that journey. Cause that must've been one of the, I know we, we spoke about sporting memories about the, your top three golfing memories. And I'm still glad that my wish goes in, in one of those. <laughs> In one of those memories, yeah, definitely. But this is this has got to be this has got to be up there with one of the one of the best things you've ever done. I, I mean, and I don't want to I don't want to put words in your mouth there, but you know, just by knowing the story, like it's um yeah. So you, you tell you tell it anyway. It was brilliant. We were um we were at a uh, at a dinner that had been organised for everyone that got hurt in the Black Hawk crash. Yep. Um, and Gary Robbo was still in hospital. JP, I think, was in hospital as well. I'm not sure where Pete was. He, but if if Gary was still there, he probably wouldn't have been. Yeah, I think I, I think he was. I think he was still in hospital. Do you know an interesting fact about Pete? You know what you were saying about him being uh, in the SAS when he qualified for the SAS. He was the youngest in the history of the SAS to qualify. I knew he was young. I didn't know he was the youngest. That's, he was the that's youngest cool. to qualify, but now I think there's one or two, a couple of dudes have beaten the title now because it was a fair while ago when he did it. But um, Luckily, I fucked that recording up so I can go back and add that in now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, put it in there, put it in there. Yeah, he's the young, youngest ever. And now someone's, someone's taking that mantle. But um, yeah, we're at a dinner and Ray was talking to me and it was heartbreaking to any time, you know, I've had... Um, all the, a lot of people that we've lost from my unit, I've had their um, families because I've kind of, I'm the guy that they know, I'm the dude with no legs that people would talk about. So I'd, people would come up with knowing eyes that I'd never met before. Yeah. You know, some people that have lost family and lost friends and stuff like that. It never gets any easier to look at anyone or like, you know, to deal, to help someone through that. And I, I knew that that was my job with, with Scotty's dad. You know, he we was sitting down talking about it. And all I could think when I was looking at him was, this is shit. Like, this dude, he's going to be looking every Christmas from here on out. He's going to be looking at an empty seat across from him thinking that his son should be there. Yeah. And just, well, like, it was just 
it was like crushing me inside just to think about that, like let alone the way that that Scotty was and what he did and all that. And it just cracked me a touch. You know what I mean? Like, and then he was telling a story about Scotty saying that he was getting out and that Pete will tell you, but their job was the last thing that they were going to do. Literally like the last bit of that tour. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, And then Chopper goes in. Uh, Ray was telling me that Scotty was getting out of the army at that stage. Yeah. Scotty was going to get out and I'm like, he was going to get out. So that means that the last job that he did before he came, put his discharge in to get out of the army. The last job that he did, he, you know, he was on that chopper. Yeah. He always cracked at that. And then he's just gone. When he got out, he was going to walk the Kokoda track with me. And when Ray said it, I thought that it was as much a thing for Ray wanting to prove himself to Scotty as it was them both doing it together. He just sort of just straight out of the blue just goes, yeah, and I want to do it with you. And I was like, okay. Let's do it. Straight out, yeah, straight out just said, yeah. I mean, Scotty would have done the same for me. My dad was saying the same thing. And I just, you know, there was no real hesitation. I didn't think about the 96 kilometers of, you know, of hard it was going to be. I was just like, cool, well, just get it done. Out we go. I mean, we had a great time too. Like we went there and it was was so much fun because like we landed in Port Moresby and went to the hotel and then had a dinner like on that night. So me and Ray have like, we'd have beers together to honor the boys. And then when we've gotten to the end of the list, we kind of start the list again. And we just, so we basically just kept drinking beers through till probably about four in the morning, which is not a good idea if you're starting the Kokoda track at six that morning. <laughs> so we, we then were- it's a recipe for chafe. Oh, both of us were, we were on Struggle Street, like proper Struggle Street. That day, the whole day was hard. Yeah. Like the entire day was just horrid. But you know those days where like, if you, or if you're pack marching or something, you're just like, please let this be over soon. And both of us were hurting. You know, like, so when we got there to where our tents were, we were kind of like, good day. And then he did the same thing. We woke, we woke up, we were a bit fresher the second day. Second and third day, we were the goods. Um, we had we had had a great time. You know, we got to talk about, uh, I guess, Scotty and the different things that happened and how the world worked. His dad used to be in the Air Force. Was in the Air Force for years. Yep. Um, so it was good chatting to him about different things that we did. We had we had a couple of really cool experiences cruising around talking about things. And you could I could just see that Ray was he was growing out of it. You know what I mean? There was something that. I think it was part of his process of having to deal with what had happened. They kind of, they got helped along. And it was just cool to be a part of that because now he's taken like, God, 20 odd families over the Kokoda Trail. You know, like now he's become a mentor for them, which is just phenomenal. But I mean, we had, he had this really cool like moment where, you know, when it, when it gets hard, you always want to, like, there is a thought that enters your head of like, oh, I might just, yeah, it's getting a bit hard. I might call it here. Stop or pull an injury or, yeah, yeah, just tap. He had that moment on like day three. He It came in the form of a knee injury. He sat me down with this like serious look on his face and was like, you know, damn, I, I, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to go, you know, like, oh, I'm just not, I'm just not, I don't know, my knee, knee's just gone, it's gone bad again. Like he was sort of saying there was some old sporting injury that had come up or. <laughs> the old squash uh, injury. Yeah, he got, he got one of those. Yeah, yeah, he twisted his knee playing squash, squash when he was 14. Like, but he, he was saying that. I thought about it and I was like, all right, cool. You got to do it, Damon. So I tried to channel Tony Robbins and it was like, mate, think about it the same way it did when you were training at the Air Force. You're training with the Air Force. Think of it like pack marching. Think about how many different times you were wearing your pack, got to the stage where you're exhausted, figured you couldn't do anything else, and then realized how much, how little you knew about yourself and how much you had left in your tank. And I went through this speech to him, and it was amazing because he's like, oh, yeah. And I, we talked about pride in the beret and the badge and things like that. And so I gave him this talk. The really funny thing with it was he ended up going – like getting back to camp probably 10 minutes before me, I get back there. There's a bunch of engineers around a fire and Ray's literally looking like Steve Irwin telling me, like plagiarizing my whole speech, this bunch of engineers. <laughs> it's like, guys, you know, you still got 50% left. Like really getting into it. 
it was awesome, but it was good just to see it not be a somber moment around the fire. Yeah. But then, like, lo and behold, the next day, we're like, it's like day four. We're growing up this massive, there's like Brigade Hill, I think it's called. One of the massive hills. There's a lot of massive hills. Yes. We're cruising up one of them, and I'm literally like, I had an advantage. I can take one of my legs off, and then I use crutches, and then that, it makes it way easier. Like, those staircases are way easier to do just on crutches. Yeah. You've got a huge advantage. It's brilliant. And then, yeah, we hung out, went up, and I mean, it was a really, really cool experience. I was exhausted by the end. How did it feel when you crossed the line? Like to be doing that with with Ray, what was the feelings there? It was like lie down time. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was a wreck. I was like an absolute physical wreck. I think and it's a, it's emotionally exhausting. It's physically draining. Um, it was it was full on. I think we only really noticed what it was like. I think after that, you know what I mean. Like the crossing the line wasn't the big thing. It was reflecting on it afterwards. Yeah. No, like we went back uh, before we flew out, went back to the to the hotel and hung out with everyone after it was done. And we had a great the dinner type thing with everyone that was on the thing. And me and Ray, got to hang, we got to tell stories and just have, have some good times together. And I think the main one, like when we went, first went out there, I like seeing that evolution in people. And I think in myself, and I sort of saw, he would sort of say, you know, when you, I've heard people who were dealing, struggling to deal with stuff before. So oh, don't worry, I'll just get him on the phone. You know, I'll just call him up now. Ray would say that before we left and when we left. And then after we'd done it, he kind of turned from, oh, I'll call him to i wonder what he'd think about you doing this yeah. you know i was making a joke about something and he's kind of like i wonder what's got to say about that you know and i thought that's a good sign that it's done good things yeah definitely yeah i think but also knowing that ray ended up taking so many other people across it you know what i mean like he not only did we get a ton out of it but then he could give that to other people yeah you've had so much success so far and uh, and you know i'll ask you at the end you know what's kind of next for you but you, you really have coming from you know a few a handful of years ago losing your legs to to where you are now is is, is it is an, it is an incredible journey and but there are times when you had a clearly had a severe amount of adversity that you had to go through as well i mean you've like i said you lost both your legs learn how to walk again you've lost mates like what do you think were the keys to your recovery i've had great people around me like i've noticed there's some really good stays in the people that are around me and i think that's the main one like my my parents have been phenomenal you know they've seen so many evolutions of me through the process i I, they're just there the amount of resilience that they've shown is is phenomenal and everyone who's who's there for me you know they always like yeah i don't know how can i put this metaphor you know i mean every it's it's easy to pick up a chick when you're driving a lamborghini yeah. You know, the chick that you really want is the one that's with you while you're sleeping on a futon. Yeah. Anyone who can't handle someone at their worst doesn't deserve them at their best. And I think that like having those type of people around you that have seen you at that and still just accept you for you are really important to have in your life. And I think that's a, they're a huge, huge part of, of me being out to being able to come out the other end. It's not like, it's not really through actions of my own. It's just through a collection of cool things that people have done. So, and I think, I think that's sort of an, an attitude that I've tried to take through stuff that stuff that's happened. You know I mean? No, it's not always going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to be shit, yep. but you know, you, I think it's, it's how you deal with that shit that ultimately, ultimately defines you. And there's, there's still also things that I'm like, well, I could have done that better. Yeah. You know, I could have done something different at that stage. And I think that's what sort of keeps me going. You know, you've always got to keep, yeah. always always still guessing what, what's going on, but yeah. Do you think there was an acceptance as well that, cause, and I only say this because I know this is something that, you know, I had to deal with as well, but there was an acceptance at some point that, you know what, I'm not Damien that used to be out of surf. I'm not, I'm never going to be Damien that used to be out of surf, you know, like that, that's not me anymore. I've been dealt the hand I have been dealt. Let's make the best opportunity that I can from what I've got. Is that kind of a mindset that's, that's happened because i see that just with the the way you speak and the way you go through and you do things and you and you know i've heard your story countless amount of times we just talk so much shit to each other but but it's almost like a journey of discovery once you lost your legs and that this is demo now and, yeah. and you talk about being scared in front of people being people seeing your legs and having that anxiety around that well this is this is demo you know this is who i am and i'm going to embrace this and i'm going to be the best 
person that I can be. Well, it was, I mean, I think to be honest, it was the humbling, it was the humbling lesson that I really needed. It was the, just that massive ego check. And I think that ego check was something that had stood in my way. You know, it had really limited, limited options and things that I could do and ways that I could get stuff done. And just letting that sort of run, run a right. So having that check of being forced to adjust, not being able to take the, the easy way or the thing that kind of came as a layer to really, really stretch things and have to, I kind of enjoyed the fact that I had to adjust and change. There was a period of time where it was kind of strange. I felt like there was a different person. Like I was kind of born a different person after the incident. Yep. Not after I got hit, it felt like I was someone different. You know, all of a sudden I, I cared more about books and looking forward and put planning for a future and working on all the things that were missing before. So I it was kind of, but I did see them as sort of two separate people. It was me before the incident, me after the incident. And then slowly those two lines intersected. If you could pass on any advice to someone that's, that is going through adversity, whether it's mental health, physical health at the moment, what, what do you think that advice would be? Uh, you're enough. You're just enough just being you. You don't have to add anything. There's no secret. There's no secret cure, secret fix. You know, every single person I think that's that's listening or that's ever dealt with any adversity, they've got all the tools that they need. You might not always use them the right way. I know I didn't, but they're all there. You know, you don't need anything else. You know, and it doesn't necessarily mean doing it just by yourself. You have as many people involved in it as possible to make the process as easy as possible. But being confident enough that you can handle the situation that you're in is 99% winning. And, you know, that, that kind of comes back to the only person that can really change your life is you. You got you to take ownership, you know. The question I want to ask every guest in the future, because this, this podcast is obviously aimed at men's well-being and it's about having a holistic approach to your, your health and your, and it's not just about mental health. It's about physical health. It's about financial health. It's about relationship health. It's, it's, it's all the four encompassing things that make you a healthy person. And so, so the question is, what does being a healthy bloke actually mean to you? Being a healthy bloke means, you know, doing, doing things in a healthy way, being able to watch, being able to watch the telly without being disinterested and changing the channel, um, being able to play around the golf and probably not play that well and not lose my cool and stay focused, being able to just function and it, on a daily level without, without really having anything that bothers me that much. That's, that's what I think because I've got some pretty, pretty straight up tells when I'm under pressure. You know, I mean, my body does some crazy anxiety things. Paying attention to those signs and being able to have that sort of mindset of knowing that at some stage, something's going to go wrong. It's inevitable. There's no gold-plated run. But then it's having the right tools to deal with that and just knowing what are the signs that something isn't cool. You know, like what are the signs of, uh, you know, I'm starting to get getting a little depressed. I'm not, you know, not making the same rational decisions as I normally would. Yeah. So that's, that's what, that's what it means to me. And so I think it's, it is, it really boils down to that, you yeah. know, being healthy is for me, making, making those cool, calm and collected decisions that I don't look back and then go, what the hell did I think that then? If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that at the moment, whether that's just to connect or to, to get you as a speaker or is you on a certain social media platform more than others or, or what yeah, would you say? Instagram, Instagram or Facebook, both, both of them will work out. Yeah, yeah, Insta's a pretty good one. And uh, what's your Insta? It's just Damien Tomlinson, isn't it? Your Insta? Yeah, yeah that's a one. Yeah, so just people can just search Damien Tomlinson and their thing and then his his beautiful mug will pop up on a f- smiling photo and away you go. Man, I just want to say I appreciate you so much for coming on this and thank you for being, firstly, thank you for being an incredible bloke and, and you know, for sharing the journey that you've been on. Thank you for your friendship to me. Thank you for being a mentor to me. And then mostly thank you for being a brother, my man. And I love you. And thanks, man. I really appreciate you coming on. I love you too, brother. Cheers. Wow. What an epic two episodes they were. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to them as much as I enjoyed recording them. I promise I'm working on the audio and sound issues you may hear. Most of the time, it really is just me having to remember stop being a dickhead and put your mouth in front of the microphone but those are the first world problems that we're dealing with at the moment 
Okay, here's the part where I ask you to get out there and help us spread the word of the Blowcast. Share the Blowcast with your friends. We have iTunes links, we have Spotify links, we have Pocket Cast links, we have Stitcher links, we have links to so many different platforms that you can listen to the podcast on. Follow our Facebook and Instagram pages and help us grow this community into a movement. Thanks everyone so far for your support. I'll see you all in the next episode. Cheers.